Good evening. I'm absolutely delighted to be in conversation tonight with Tom Stoppard about the hard problem which opened uh, last week uh, in the Dorfman Theatre. Um, and I thought I would start by reading the, uh, the short letter that Tom wrote to me just as, he was, uh, just as he was starting to write the play about 15 months ago and use that as a kind of basis for the questions that I will then uh, ask him about the play. Tom wrote, I want to write a character who is good, not goody-goody, and believes that goodness has an objective reality which is not captured by, explained by, defined by evolutionary science, by evo-psychology, evo-biology, by neo-Darwinism. The character is a young woman who's in her early 20s at the beginning of the play. The time span is about 10 years, circa 1999 to 2008. The setting is based on some place like the Allen Institute in Seattle, but we're in England. Paul Allen, ex-Microsoft, ex has financed a brain science lab to investigate how brains work, etc. The play's dates are to accommodate my, my hazy notion that my Allen is a hedge fund guy and that the credit crunch is where we're heading. So, a play about evolutionary biology and the banking crisis. <laughs> Happy Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Tom, um, I think goodness um, and the um, objective reality or not of goodness is something that you've been concerned by throughout your playwriting career. Um, what, what was it particularly that fired this play, that, that started it up? Um, the moment was longer ago than I care to admit, and so long ago that I can no longer identify the moment itself, but uh, the whole area of, um, you know, um, science journalism, uh, books, discussions, the, the, the whole terrain of um, the relation between consciousness, metaphysics, and consciousness. In other words, um, I'm putting this very badly, but I'm beginning, what's, what's becoming clear to me as I speak is the central, the core part of what engaged me was the question of value. That how, we, how do we derive value um, from what we know of the physical world? Because, and when I say value, I mean, value uh, in every sense, uh, to put it as simply as possible. Uh, we can say that Virginia Woolf was a taller writer than Iris Murdoch, no problem there. Uh, if you start saying she was better or not as good as Iris Murdoch, uh, there you enter an area of what, what value actually is, whether it's subjective or whether there are um, ben, you know, ex external measures. But more important than literary value, there, naturally there's a whole area of ethics and moral philosophy. Um, I don't want my first answer to occupy the time at our disposal, <laughs> um, <coughs> because I've hardly got to my semicolon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say briefly, Nick, that um, uh, in, you know, a long time ago, before you came to the National Theatre, uh, 
I had a moral philosophy play and a moral philosopher as the main character in Jumpers, which um, tells you and me that I've been preoccupied in one way or another with much of what's in that little letter. Yeah, yeah. This play, you become um, more interested, I think, than in Jumpers, uh, in in the business of consciousness, um, in the mind-body problem. It, the title is the giveaway, the hard problem to philosophers is consciousness. Uh, at some point, your concern with goodness and value must have, coincide, must have coincided with your interest uh, in what, if anything, constitutes consciousness. And um, I, I, I think you have quite strong views on it. Well, um, it just seems to me that the idea of real morality um, is unintelligible without consciousness. So it's not as though they were even two subheadings. They seem to me to be the same headline. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I'm not saying this in, with an ironic spin, but because I think simplicity is a virtue in many cases, in many ways. But so when I say that to my simple mind, it seemed to me a serious problem that the body is made of things and things don't have thoughts, but thought somehow either emerges from the arrangement of these trillions of things or, um, and is this, <laughs> is, the, uh, is the other possibility stranger than that? The idea of there being a supreme being or a metaphysical intelligence? Um, all the phrases which came through my head are, are in the play, um, including, uh, you know, if, if it really is physics, then we're just marking our own homework and I'm not really pleased with the idea that I'm marking my own homework because I can then decide whether things are right or wrong myself. And that doesn't seem adequate. But you give, early on in the play, the, uh, the, the, young, the young psychologist, the unscrupulous, uh, charming um, antagonist, Spike, sets out his stall, it seems to me, pretty effectively when, 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 the, when he defends his contention that, um, that goodness is learned behavior. You see, he's got the better argument yeah. uh, because he's on solid ground, literally. Yeah. Uh, it's difficult for her to have a better argument because her argument is, in a sense, the kind of negative corollary. Uh, it derives simply from a personal, very subjective sense of what is um, adequate to the agony and ecstasy of human life. Um, it's, uh, and, and this is certainly me. I mean, it just seemed to me that um, I don't really want the things which are emotionally important to be devalued by being relative to, as it were, the textbook of human life, 
as opposed to the poem of human life. It's, uh, oops, I've gone dead, am I? Am I alive? Yes, I'm alive. Um, I, I wanted to, I mean, just to kind of change the level we're talking about, uh, I had a desire to write um, a short, brisk play with no intermission. I know that sounds like a banal way to uh, sort of <laughs> point of departure, but uh, it's quite an important one, it was to me, because um, it establishes the, the nature of the play, the tone of the writing. Um, it may strike some of you as surprising if you've seen The Hard Problem, but I think of it as a piece of minimalism, uh, because one could, as it were, fatten it up. Um, but the play tends to go from point to point and from response to counter-response. Yeah. And that was what I wanted to do. Um, if it's not embarrassing to say so, um, I'm in your presence. I'm very pleased with the way the play has been done. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, there is... Um, the, when you, you write in the letter, and I didn't obviously get it at the time because you're giving me the bare bones that you want to write about uh, evolutionary biology and the banking crisis, you do draw this very striking analogy between um, the unreason, the, the, to many people, surprising um, unreasonable, uh, unreasonable um, of the market, the irrational exuberance and indeed the irrational um, panic of the market, and the way uh, the human mind, the way the human brain is subject to bouts of unreason, which are, which are hard to explain um, through um, th purely physically. At, at what point did those two themes uh, occur to you as themes which might mirror each other? You know, I would like to be in this chair saying that I had this early perception that um, the world of finance uh, offered a way uh, of dealing with, uh, in some apposite way, dealing with um, questions of how the brain actually worked. I would like to say that it occurred to me that um, the notion of a computational brain uh, might be thought to be at odds with the way the market goes wrong, having, as it were, um, having established computationally that nothing can possibly go wrong. Uh, and that, what I've just said, was true of me and the process at a slightly later stage. Uh, what actually happened, which I, I probably would, uh, no, I don't think you should pass this on, but what actually happened is that I was thinking I really would like to write a play about consciousness, and I'd really like to write a play about the financial crisis, and I collected material for both plays, and then I just thought I really don't want to waste this stuff by writing the other one, um, so I thought actually there's a way where they impinge upon each other. And the way in which they impinge is, uh, it's obviously quite a simple notion, but not less true for its simplicity. Uh, and it is that 
Um, since we became familiar with the computer, uh, the notion that that explains our brains became uh, very, very attractive to very many people who are reluctant to let go of it. I mentioned in a program note uh, that um, John Searle, who was writing about these things for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, he um, found that the adherence of, of, as it were, religious doctrine, uh, to, to put this another way, the adherence uh, of um, the computational mind were more fervent than the people who were positing something from the religious doctrines. Uh, in other words, they were behaving as though they had a faith themselves. Um, that period of the, the, the story, you know, the arc of the story, which cognitive science has been engaged on, uh, it, that period is not over now. It probably has waned uh, because, and I really, I'm also I'm a little, a little uncertain about how to speak to an audience of whom, for, for all I know, mostly don't know the play. I don't want to get too, as it were, indebted to one's knowledge of the play. But um, suffice to say that the, the attempts to explain consciousness um, in terms of physicalism have become very much more sophisticated than that. And um, the book I'm in the middle of at the moment, because I'm afraid I haven't kicked the habit yet in spite of opening the play, uh, makes great play and a huge book. And I mean, I mean a, large, a, a decent book, which makes huge play of these things happening on a quantum mechanical level rather than a classical physical level. Uh, but the great thing about the situation is, and it does gladden my heart as a writer as well as an individual person, the great thing about it is that honestly nobody knows. Nobody has the faintest idea. Um, and perhaps uh, it's just a matter of time, you know, things take time. Uh, we, we didn't know about Maxwell's equations for many centuries, and then we did. Um, and one day, perhaps, we'll understand how consciousness emerges from 100 billion neurons in your skull. Uh, or, there's a guy, Colin McGinn, who's also floated the idea that it may be that we'll never know because our particular brand of logic, our particular brand of truth and falsity, doesn't fit well with the deep explanation of consciousness and therefore will never crack it. Um, so this is a play which obviously has no ultimate answer, and couldn't have. Mm. Uh, it suggests that you personally, because um, forgive me if I make the elementary mistake of, of identifying um, 
the central character and her beliefs with your beliefs, but it does suggest that you do have um, a religious side to you that you that in that I'm not talking about religious doctrine, but I, it it does suggest yeah. that for want of a better word, you believe in God. Yes, um, uh, is there a better word? Um, <laughs> because it is in the end only a word. Uh, it's the it's another way of putting that, uh, it's another way of describing what I don't believe. Yeah. Uh, it's the, as it were, as for the character in the play, it's a consequence of what she cannot bring herself to believe. Um, there's a little exchange about mother love in the play. Uh, she simply cannot get her head around the idea that mother love, uh, the virtue of mother love, resides entirely in its utility. That's a utilitarian, it's a good thing in a utilitarian way. It doesn't have any kind of supra-physical meaning. Um, a mother with a baby probably would find that offensive, in a sense. Um, but most scientists now, by far the most scientists now, um, think that that's what's happening, that uh, natural selection uh, goes right down the ladder to a genetic level and is making choices of self-interest from the organism, up uh, from the gene to the organism, to the family, to the tribe, to the society, nation against nation. Um, every impulse is directed by advantage. Now, um, the, the thing which really you could write an entire play about and a longer play is to try to work out where the dissenters dissent then comes from because you get into um, a very frustrating loop if you say well that also comes from the same brain process which goes back to genetic imperatives um, if it's not that, uh, it's quite difficult to avoid some overall moral intelligence. Um, I'm perfectly happy to call it God. Um, and yet, the word God uh, brings so much with it that uh, I also resist the word while accepting it. Um, Richard Dworkin, whom you may have known, I expect, who's an American philosopher who was really a sort of brilliant man um, in legal and political philosophy. Uh, he, his last book, which I think was actually posthumous based on lectures he'd given not long before he died, 
had a little book called Religion Without God. And the idea was that, yes, you know, absolutely, it's all happening. The sunset, what the music does to us, uh, what I'm feeling when I'm looking at Venice or falling in love. Uh, all these um, are true events in the physical world. Um, but they don't derive from a deity. And the reason one or he could say that they cannot derive from a deity is that it is our living, evolved conception of virtue which has defined our deities. And therefore, by an ineluctable logic, our values must have preceded uh, the idea of God. Um, you can see why um, philosophy has, um, you know, a, a golden existence and a pathetic one. And there's a line in my play which um, nobody has ever, ever laughed at. And it's, and it's the line which I laugh at most inwardly. I thought, oh, this, this is definitely a goodie. He says it every night and nobody, act, you could hear a pin drop. Um, and it's where he says, he says to her, uh, don't publish this, she's something about God. And she says, why not? And he says, because it will make you unemployable. You'd have to do philosophy. Um, you see? Yeah, finally a laugh. <laughs> sort of. Um, yeah, I, I think I think uh, I think um, if I have ever have enough philosophers in the house, then a baleful laugh might <laughs> come out. There was um, we did have a wonderful um, a, a wonderful Dan rehearsal when a friend of yours who who with whom you had talked in the preparation of the play, an eminent biologist, came to talk to us, and you I thought it was below the belt. Uh, but we were talking about altruism. We were talking about love. We were talking about um, values which may have preceded the conception of God. And you asked him, and he, I think, in your terms, is utilitarian. Um, purely, he sees the world in purely physical terms. You asked him to explain um, the school teacher who stood between the Taliban and the class full of children in Pakistan and uh, for no evolutionary reason that you could think of, um, had, uh, had put herself uh, in the way of harm and was killed. Um, and you asked him where he thought that had come from. And he said, and I do want to stress that this was, um, there was a degree of irony <laughs> in what he said. He said, well, in my terms, I think she made a mistake. Um, I thought your question was not an or was was a was a was a difficult question, as I say, a below the belt question. But do you find that kind of approach? Um, I I don't believe for a second that the biologist really would have told this poor teacher that she was making a mistake. No, he wouldn't. Um, he would. He absolutely wouldn't. He would have. He and I'm sure he was moved by her bravery and altruism. But do you find the philosophical approach that says in evolutionary terms? Uh, this remarkable, brave teacher made a mistake. Do you find that alarming, offensive? Is it? Uh, no, not in the least. And the reason is, I know what he meant. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like talking to, uh, I don't know, 
a mechanic about an engine. Mm. Uh, uh, they have a way of talking. That's a very bad analogy. Uh, but I knew what he meant. Yeah. Uh, and what he meant was that um, when we were hunter-gatherers, certain um, good moves were built into us. They were built into us because uh, the individual organisms which had it by chance uh, had it, found it an advantage and therefore um, they did better in life and they had more children who had this trait. Obviously this is an a statistical averaging out over many years, over many people. But what he was saying was that our impulse has been produced by the need to protect the young ones in our immediate society. And this impulse has survived in our impulsive nature way millions of years beyond where it fitted. Now that we actually live in urban societies um, and we're not nomadic and so on, now that all that has overtaken the human way of life, that very original impulse, which was, as it were, evolved for um, protecting the immediate kin, um, is still in us. It, it doesn't disappear. It's there. And um, Richard Dawkins, with whom I had a <coughs> correspondence about something close to this, uh, calls it a misfire. It's like a misfire. Um, and Armand, uh, bless him, uh, I, I, know, I hope he doesn't join the foreign office and become a diplomat, uh, because that way of, that completely honest way of talking in his own language can seem upsetting. Um, you can see how little upset me because I'd forgotten that, that incident. Yeah, it, uh, I, th I think, <laughs> I, I think we, we all were very struck by it, although, I'd, mm. I'd, although we, did, we mm. did all understand exactly There was what a heavy was yeah. uh, spin on it, yeah. I know. Yeah, we've talked about ideas. Um, we've talked about the ideas behind the play. What we haven't talked about is how intricately it's constructed and how intricately every idea is echoed in the action and narrative of the play and that it's worth, if you've not seen it yet, or even if you've seen it, um, it it's worth um, getting hold of a copy of the play that there, isn't, that there isn't a philosophical idea that is discussed early on that doesn't find its embodiment in the action at some point. And there's little time bombs set ticking in the first scene of the play. Um, so it moves so swiftly, the play, that you might miss them. Um, the, um, the game of Prisoner's Dilemma, the philosopher's game of Prisoner's Dilemma, um, is there in the first 30 seconds. That game and the way you explain it and the way it is argued over in the first page of the play then finds itself constantly threaded into the action. So that by the end of the play, you realize the game has been played and played out in a way that 
Spike, the psychologist, says uh, is not correct, is not fair, uh, by Hillary, who is, uh, in the first 45 seconds of the play, um, uh, by Hillary, who complains that the, um, that the prisoner's dilemma makes no sense when applied to real human behavior. It doesn't really, uh, what, 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 I'm, what I'm saying, it doesn't really depend on you knowing even what the prisoner's dilemma is. What I'm saying is, um, it is worth um, being alert in the play uh, to how uh, to, uh, uh, to how intricately constructed it is. I don't think I've ever worked on a more intricately constructed play or one in which the ideas keep finding themselves embodied in the action. Um, and I think uh, it's one of the it's one of the reasons for writing plays and one of the reasons for seeing them. Um, you could uh, you could think about what Tom has been thinking about here for the last half hour by reading the books that Tom has read, but you can't experience them um, as fully humanized um, uh, anywhere as well as you can, I guess, in the theater in a, in a play like this. I mean, uh, your plays are packed full of ideas, but it does strike me that you have got very involved in the characters and the action of this play. Um, I've always been stingy with information in my plays. Mm. I've always had a recoil from what to me is over-explicitness, yeah. a kind of spare explanation, which I find kind of quite offensive. The result is that um, I'm often a bit too stingy with what you've got to be alert to, as Nick said. Um, actually, very briefly, sorry, sorry everybody who didn't see the play, but it doesn't give anything away anyway. There's a, there's a bit in scene two. Um, well, actually, in scene one, she says, don't, if I, if I hear that particular phrase again, um, I'm going to vomit. I won't make it to the toilet. In scene two, he does mention this phrase, and uh, he picks up a waste bin by the desk and, and puts it near her so she can vomit into it. Uh, Nick said, they weren't, sorry, no, I mean, look, 10 minutes have gone by since that bit. It's never gonna, and I said, no, no, honestly, uh, they, they'll get it, they'll get it. Nobody got it. That was, <laughs> that was the first preview. So for the second preview, um, I wrote, instead of saying, I'm, I'm warning you, Spike, projectile vomiting, I'm not gonna make it to the toilet. She says, for the second preview, I wrote, um, projectile vomiting, I'm warning you, Spike, if you mention the prisoner's dilemma, I'm gonna puke into that bin. <laughs> Uh, which, I, you know, I find that was a signal failure of, <laughs> of dramaturgy. And I have a feeling it didn't quite work until we actually put the bin on the bed in front of her. And it was nearly okay, nearly right. And then I said, well, maybe actually he should hand her the bin. <laughs> so in the end, um, bit by bit, by preview four, uh, the audience made the connection very securely. <laughs> um, and I must say that... Um, that I was completely wrong about that, and I really resent it. Shall we put the house lights up and, and take some questions? Um, so, uh, in the center on the front row. Uh, yes, thank you both for doing this. Uh, since you've done a, a lot of thought, and I'm sure a lot of research about this, and can save us all some time, the study that goes a little awry 
have all the other studies similar to that been, uh, they haven't had uh, expected results or they've had random results? Well, what study? The, uh, you're referring to the, the paper that uh, Hillary and Bo published. Yeah, well, I think I, if, I, if, I if I repeat and explain the question a little bit, um, during the play, uh, Hillary and her assistant, Beau, publish a paper which appears to demonstrate statistically that, um, that goodness is innate and that selfish behavior is learned. And I think the question is, have such, have such studies been, have such experiments taken place? Have such papers been published? Um, <coughs> not, nothing quite like that. As far as I'm aware, I made up that particular study. Um, and um, I simply haven't discovered yet whether it strikes uh, genuine working experimental psychologists as being reasonable or plausible. I hope it is. Um, uh, you know, again, this is somebody this woman is somebody who just feels as an, an instinctive faith of some kind that we're born good. And this is, this is the Russo idea. You know, we're born good and society corrupts us. Um, whereas the, the Hobbes idea is that we're born murderous uh, and society has to subdue us, or to put it more kindly, teach us. Um, I don't like the idea, I'm going off piste here, sorry, but I don't like the idea of um, humanity having to be taught to be good. Um, I also think that you get into the other side of that loop where if, it, if, if we have to be taught, then who is teaching at bottom? Mm. Uh, another question. Yes, sir. Your fascinating account of how you change the scene to make it work. Is that something you've always done in your plays? Um, is it something I've always done, changing a scene during rehearsal? Uh, it's, it's always, always been something I've been prepared to do and have sometimes done. Um, it's, uh, yeah. You know, a play of mine in 1968 was the very first play in England to have a preview. The play before that, in 1967, had a dress rehearsal, uh, you know, one Monday, whatever, and critics on Tuesday. Um, you know, I, c I don't know what I feel about that, um, but until you have an audience, what I feel is that until you have an audience, you don't really know. You don't really know what you've got there, and some things are really, really important. Uh, to do with um, the length of what you've written on every scale. You know, is this phrase too long? Is this sentence too long? Is this speech too long? Is this scene too long? In, on every scale, 
there is a proportionateness about what you're trying to do. And it depends on, it depends very, very much, in a sense entirely, it has no other existence, it depends upon the, how it lands with everybody out there. And of course it lands slightly differently for everybody. It's very, it's very rare to collect an audience except on a level which is lower than you would want to collect them on. <laughs> um, if you, you, know, you, could, you could raise it a notch and, you'd and you might lose an eighth of them. Um, and it's, it's to do with reference and allusion. Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't want to make my answer too long, but just in, in one sentence, um, a play of mine refers to Goneril. In 1974, Everybody in the audience knew who Goneril was and laughed. Um, in around 1990, when the play was revived, maybe half. Um, so there are many, many levels on which to get something right or wrong. And that's, just, that's one of the simplest ones. Gosh, sorry, I never saw you there. I've got my back to you all this time. Um, but the mic's okay. Um, Yes. I think we've got time for one more question. I, I know, that, yes, your, your hand was up last time, yeah. Um, people say you're Britain's greatest living playwright. Why did you wait nine years to write a new play? Was it writer's block? Did you fear what Wow. So, <laughs> shall, I repeat, shall I repeat the question? <laughs> people say you're Britain's greatest living playwright. Why did you write, wait nine years to write a play? Did you have writer's block? <laughs> Can I just dispose of one thing? There is no such person as anywhere's greatest living playwright. Uh, that's an equation uh, from which I'm benefiting at the moment, and I, I, I don't like it, to be honest. Um, I didn't actually exactly wait nine years. Um, I mean, I was doing other things. It was eight years, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wrote other stuff, uh, but because of the subject matter, you know, you, you, you never got to the bottom of the research. I call it research, but it was reading for pleasure, um, and you, you, you never get to the bottom of finding out about this stuff, and uh, so it was eight years of and much more than eight, by the way, because I know I wrote, uh, the last time I wrote a play, I was already into consciousness. So um, the answer is I didn't wait, um, I procrastinated. <laughs> it's been, um, it's, it, but whether, whether, whether waiting or procrastination, it's been a tremendous privilege and pleasure for me to be able to direct, um, finally, a, a new Tom Stoppard play. Um, I hope you won't procrastinate quite so long before the next one, Tom. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. uh, <coughs> and um, even though I won't be here, I hope it comes by way of the National Theatre, and it's wonderful that the National Theatre has bagged this one. Tom, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.